Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Welcome back for our third part of our series. Please welcome back Dr. William Marshner. Well, hello everyone. Where we left off last time, I was talking about the two main movements in the 19th century philosophy. One of them was called pragmatism, and I was going to tell you what happened when positivism got mixed up with Darwinism. Well, hold on to that thought, because I'm going to get to it. But I need to take a little tangent to tell you about something else first. You sometimes wonder why there was so much resistance in the 19th century to the old and traditional philosophy that had been cultivated in the Catholic Church. I told you the two main movements from beginning to end of that century were idealism and positivism. Neither of them bears much resemblance to uh, traditional metaphysics, Thomism, for that matter, Scotism, any form of scholastic thought. Why was that? Well, remember that the 19th century of all centuries believed that it was the culmination and the cusp. Everything before was more or less darkness, but now the 19th century had come. They were convinced that everything pre-modern was completely outmoded and worthless. And people were put into this frame of mind, of course, by the enormous technological advances that took place in the 19th century. Never was human life so changed in a century as it was from the beginning of the 19th century when everything was still on horseback to the end of the 19th century when there were railroads and the automobile had even been invented, it wasn't a big deal yet, but it had been invented, steamships and so on, worldwide commerce just enormously changed, agriculture went through enormous changes, ways that European man had lived since the Roman Empire became obsolete in the course of the 19th century. And as a result, people thought, well, the past was all prologue to us. We are the heirs and the inheritors, and everything from back there is just hopelessly outmoded. Well, not only was there a general suspicion of scholasticism as outmoded, unsalvageable, but also the Catholics in the 19th century 
had developed a system of their own. Now, I told you about idealism and positivism last time, and those were indeed the two big movements in the larger world. But you know how it is in Catholic circles. We have our own little, our own culture and our own way of doing things, and we had plenty of priests who wanted to do some honor to the church's traditional appreciation of Aquinas and so on. They didn't think you could go back to it, but they didn't want to be so dismissive of it as the world in general was. And so you need to know that by the middle of the 19th century, Catholic, um, what noun shall I use? Eggheads. <laughs> Intellectuals had developed a homegrown philosophical system that they thought was vastly better than scholasticism. And don't think for one minute that Rome's attempts to get rid of this homegrown philosophy were welcome. Okay? What was the name of this homegrown philosophy? Neither exactly idealism, nor exactly positivism, but native to Catholic ranks. Oh, it had a fancy name. It's the name of something you think you never want to learn about, because it sounds awful. And I'm not going to tell you all there is to say about it, just some salient points. Anyway, the name of this position was O-N-T-O-L-O-G-I-S-M. Ontologism. Okay? Now, ontos has to do with being. So this is some kind of ism about being. Okay, well, what about it? Okay, get this. The fundamental idea of ontologism was that we have in our minds an immediate perception of the absolute being. Yes. It is the system which admits in the human soul an immediate knowledge of God. This philosophy maintained that intelligence properly so-called, pure intellect, has for its object the divine being. Now then, if this sounds to you unlike a description of the contents of your mind, please be aware that ontologism said you had this immediate grasp of the divine being, but you didn't know it. Okay? It would be a little bit like being in heaven and having the beatific vision, but not knowing it. Now, is this weird or what? Now then, the main utility of this philosophical new invention, the main utility of it was to get around the problem of proving the existence of God. Now, why was that a problem? 
Well, on the one hand, you had progress in the sciences, and people weren't sure that the old arguments from change and motion and so on worked anymore. By the way, they do. That's another discussion. We'll get into that sometime. And, uh, but anyway, people had their minds clouded by Kant. Remember what I told you about Kant? Remember I told you that according to Kant, there could not be any theoretical knowledge of God, not even that he exists. Okay? Because you can't argue back to God as from an effect back to a cause. Why not? Because all cause and effect relations, according to Kant, have to be between phenomena, between appearances, between empirical things. And since God is not an empirical thing, you can't invoke him as a cause. So said Kant. Well, these Catholics in the 19th century, they had all read the Critique of Pure Reason also. They didn't like it completely, but they couldn't refute it. It's a hard book to read, I told you that. They didn't like it, but they couldn't refute it. And they thought, oh, if we can get around this problem, let's get around it. Okay. So here was the way around the problem. <laughs> we'll say that you can't prove the existence of God because any argument you put together to do so would already assume it. You can't argue to it as a conclusion because any argument you put together already assumes it. Well, how in the world does any argument that you could possibly put together already assume that there's a God? And, and how am I supposed to know this? I mean, what is this direct knowledge of God that the intellect is supposed to have? Okay, here we go, friends. And here was where we get into the name ontologism, okay? I call this the mysticism of is. You got the Wizard of Oz, this is the mysticism of is, okay? According to the ontologists, you had a direct vision of the divine being every time you understood the verb to be. Uh -huh. Okay, so how about, my sister is dumb. I use the verb to be in putting that sentence together, okay? The subject goes with the predicate together in a nasty way. But, the glue that puts subject and predicate together is the verb to be. And that, understanding that, is knowing God for what he is in himself. Uh, now, you can see why they thought any argument you put together would already assume God's existence. Try putting an argument together that doesn't use the verb to be anywhere. They, could, they thought that every judgment involved the verb to be somehow, if not explicitly, implicitly. So you were always saying, is, 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 this is that, this is that, this is the other. Every time you say is, 
bingo, you're getting a glimpse of God. Okay. Why would anyone think that? Get this. I can have any subject, how about A, is B. A can be any subject and B can be any predicate, right? And I can still put them together with the glue of is, right? So, the verb to be is not restricted to any one class of subjects or to any one class of predicates. It's completely general. In other words, the is that turns up in, a, in any judgment, in any sentence like that, is unrestricted. It's not restricted to one class of subjects, not restricted to any one class of predicates. You can say anything is anything else. It's at least good grammar. All right? So this is, is unrestricted. Oops. But if is expresses being without restriction, then, then friends, ask yourself, what is the unrestricted being? Ah, it has to be the infinite being, the supreme being. How do you like that? All right. So, by virtue of that funny word, unrestricted, they managed to pack in to the simple verb to be the divine existence, the divine being. Okay? Now, was this stupid? Yes. <laughs> Supremely. Did Aquinas already, in the 13th century, know that this was stupid? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He distinguished perfectly well between the being which is unrestricted because it contains all perfection, that's God, and the being which is unrestricted simply because it's so vague that it doesn't exclude any perfection. Take an idea which is maximally vague and identify it with the maximum of being, and bingo. You have this absurd mistake. An understanding of what God is is now built into every sentence you utter, so you don't have to prove that he exists. You can't talk without assuming that he exists. Now, the system ran into trouble. Rome was not without vigilant eyes in those days. And the ontologist philosophy already started to be condemned in 1861. That was a good year. Think of the start of the Civil War and all kinds of fine events. 1861. The Vatican started condemning this and they picked the very first proposition the very first proposition that they picked said 
the one that said that the divine being is essential to the human intellect. Indeed, it's the very light of the intellect. Condemned 1861. Well then, did ontologism dry up and blow away? No, no, no. Despite condemnations that began coming out from Rome, ontologism continued to be taught in practically every seminary in Italy. Even after Leo XIII brought out the Thomistic Revival encyclical, the seminaries were loath to give this up because ontologism had become the official philosophy of the Sulpician order. The Sulpicians. Heard of those guys? Who are the guys who used to run seminaries? Saint-Sulpice, the Sulpician order. They sponsored this everywhere, except in Louvain, where they didn't need to sponsor it. The Jesuits at Louvain had adopted ontologism as their official philosophy. They were convinced that this nonsense was a brilliant new philosophical breakthrough that could you know, buttress Catholic faith and intellect and stick to being and no more worries from Kant and so on and so on. The Vatican got more and more suspicious of it. <laughs> Tell you one more story about it. The Vatican really got mad when Rome figured out that these people could not safeguard the truth of creation. Given their principles, they had to come up with a very strange account of what it is for God to create anything. Remember, God is this infinite ball of is. And every perfection is in this is. Well, how does anything ever get out of the ball of is? Their answer was that God doesn't exactly cause. No, 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 no. That would get you in trouble with Kant. He doesn't exactly cause things outside himself. Here's what he does. He thinks of something which is like a part of what he is. And then... He thinks of the distinction between himself and that part. And thereby he creates that partial or finite perfection. <laughs> now, why didn't Rome think that was a very plausible account of creation? Well, I won't leave you guessing long. If you don't see it already, here it is. From all eternity, God understands every possible being and perfectly well understands that the gazillion possibilities he understands are other than himself. He also understands himself, of course. He understands innumerable ways in which he can be imitated. He understands that those ways in which he can be imitated are not ways he himself exactly is. So from all eternity, 
he understands what the ontologists said went on in creation. So, by their account, creation has to have occurred from all eternity. It couldn't fail to occur as long as God has his knowledge called um, simplicius intelligentiae, his knowledge of simple understanding. So there couldn't fail to be a creation. They had it tied to the divine knowledge in such a way that we're inevitable. All right? No, 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 no. Any acceptable theology, it's acceptable to the Bible and acceptable to the church, has to recognize that creation is a contingent effect of God, something he freely chose, not something he had to do because of how he knows. So the Holy See got on something of a crusade to get rid of this ontologist business. And where was the resistance the toughest? In the seminaries and in the Jesuit order. Hmm? Interesting? Oh, yes. All right, now I'm done with this little subject of ontologism, at least for the time being. And I am ready to go back to critical positivism and how it came to shoot itself in the head, so to speak. Remember that positivism put all of its eggs in the basket of science. All knowledge had to come from the phenomena. There was no reality behind them. The world is just a set of appearances. No, nothing deeper behind it. And if you learn from the appearances, you learn by observation. This is the technique of empirical science. All real knowing is empirical science. Now, I mentioned that once the positivists realized they had put all their eggs in this basket, they began to suspect that the basket wasn't completely sound in some places. Few loose straws in the weave. They, they noticed, for example, that real scientists use in their theories words for non-appearing things. Occult forces like gravity. Okay. Gravity is not a phenomenon. Maybe it is if you're falling. I don't know. <laughs> Other than that. <laughs> All right. Your, your change of place is a phenomenon. That gravity is causing it is not a phenomenon, right? So anyway, the force call, that we call gravity, they couldn't account for, and so they couldn't allow it in science. It didn't fit their canons. It had to go. Later on in the 19th century, when atomic theory began to take hold, remember how Einstein tried to convince the positivist philosopher Ernst Mach, M-A-C-H, that uh, atoms were real? And Mach believed it for about five minutes and then stopped believing it because you couldn't see them. All right, it got worse than that. There was a kind of a big event. Was it 1848 or 1849? The publication of Darwin's Origin of the Species and the Descent of Man. 
Here was a science, a theory in biology, that had something to say about how every power, every organ develops in every living thing. And Darwinism said, everything in every living thing, every feature, is there for one and only one purpose, to enhance the survivability of members of that species, right? It's all about the struggle for survival. Now, according to the positivists, man was a living species, and the positivists had all their eggs in the basket of one human faculty, namely the intellect, whose optimum use was science. But what if evolution has given us our intellects just so we can survive better? Uh-oh. Maybe science is not about the truth after all. Maybe science is about establishing an account of things that makes our survival easier. Maybe the concepts we come up with in science are just convenient ways for us to organize our experience, not really grounded in nature at all, but grounded in man's need for order and predictability. Oops. All of a sudden, the intellect became really untrustworthy. Now, I told you in the first lecture that one of the main themes throughout the 19th century was a certain distrust of reason, a certain degree of reaction against reason. In the beginning, it was the romantic reaction of feelings and emotions against the Enlightenment. Now, all of a sudden, it becomes deeper. Because life itself is not about understanding. Life is about survival. Life is about eating and reproducing and feeding and producing the next generation. Life is about survival. And the only thing to say about your intellect is it is a new and very fancy kind of claw. Yes, the puma has its claws, the birds have their claws. They are instruments and means to improve their survival ability. That's what your brain is, too. Okay? So, all of a sudden, the critical positivists had to admit that maybe, maybe science wasn't the last word. Maybe a scientific account of reality just gave us an evolutionarily convenient view of things. Maybe other forms of experience 
would also give convenient views of things. Up steps Henry James. No, William James, not Henry. William James at the end of the 19th century. To say, well, there's another mode of experience. It's called uh, religious experience. Maybe that's some good. And meanwhile, the idealists, who had been taking beatings from the positivists all through the century, were suddenly overjoyed. The positivists had just sort of delegitimized the scientific account of things, taken away its exclusive grip on the truth, and so the idealists said, well, maybe, maybe you could get a deeper and closer view by, by, by coming over to us. In fact, a treaty was made between the idealists and the positivists at the end of the 19th century. It was called the fusion moment. There was a treaty of peace drawn up between these two long warring schools. And it was like the way the Pope settled that long war between the Spaniards and the Portuguese. Remember how the Pope divided the Western, divided the Western world? Picked, I don't know, picked a line of uh, longitude or something. In just the same way. In the fusion system, positivism gets the outside of everything and idealism gets the inside. All of a sudden, the two schools cease to quabble. I want to give you what I think is just an optimal illustration of this fusionist philosophy at work. It is a quotation from the preeminent French modernist, a man named Alfred Loisy, L-O-I-S-Y. Alfred Loisy was mainly a biblical critic, okay? Wrote books on the Gospels and, you know, had his doubts about the historicity of this, that, and the other thing, the way all these guys did. But anyway, he was mainly a, a biblical scholar, spent his youth studying Hebrew verbs because he knew he didn't have much of a head for philosophy. Nevertheless, he couldn't keep his hands off of philosophical issues and theological issues, and he wrote a series of articles in the French Clergy Review, and this one came out in March of 1900. In this article, Wazi gives his theory of what a miracle is. All right, now this is going to be a touchy one for modernists, right? Because if you're a positivist, you can't believe in them. You know, if you're an idealist, here's Wazi. Miracle is the course of the world and life contemplated by faith, which alone penetrates its enigma. Semicolon. <laughs> the same course 
of the world and of life observed in some way from outside by reason is the order of nature the domain of science and of philosophy okay now watch I imagine you adhere yourselves to the standard and indeed orthodox account of miracles would you say that science can put miraculous events under its own laws and predict them no absolutely not Loisy is saying exactly that okay everything that happens has an inside and an outside if you look at it on the outside by reason it's an object of science it all happens according to law it's all perfectly predictable huh he's a bit of a determinist but never mind that ah but if you look at the inside with guess what the eyes of faith you're going to get an x-ray into the inside and there you're going to find divine life or meaning or something so miracles are not extraordinary events okay no they're not events that science can't explain no they may be perfectly explicable but if you have the eyes of faith you're going to see them in a different light okay suppose this podium started to float well we would think that very odd and uh, but I, I don't I don't think we're so instinctively and deeply religious that we would just assume right away it's a miracle I mean we would first wonder well maybe there's an air current under there or something so we search around for that no air current well, maybe there's some visible strings up here no can't find any strings why is this thing floating okay well we might start reaching for fancier explanations a hole in the earth's gravitational field uh, and if none of that seems to work then we just give up we just say well it's inexplicable now from our point of view a miracle has to start as an event that has no scientific explanation but then it goes on miracles happen in connection with divine revelations public or private with messages with phenomena connected to the well-being of the faithful I would think that uh, a miracle had taken place if along with the floating podium there came a voice and the voice said Sabatino is my beloved son hear ye him <laughs> right sure give, give me a message to go with it and tell me that this is God's doing then then sure but for Loazi you don't need any message it doesn't have to be a sign it doesn't have to be in connection with religion or religious phenomena or the fountain that lures or anything like that all it needs is the eyes of faith looking at a perfectly ordinary event in the course of nature and so 
Wazi became one of those people who makes miracles irrelevant by making them everywhere. Okay? There are two ways to deny miracles, don't forget that. One is to say they never happen. The other way is to say everything's a miracle. Sure. Do you believe that every time a flower grows, it's a miracle? Every time I spill my tea, is that a miracle? You're right. It's more of a miracle if I don't spill it. Right. I have certain neckties that I could never put on without some sort of horrible accident. This, fortunately, is not one of them. It's been safe so far, but yeah. All right, so there's Wazi flat out denying the traditional and orthodox and only sensible account of miracles and doing so by appealing to this fusionist philosophy. Religion somehow gets to the inside where things have, I don't know, like meaning or something. Science only gets at the outside where everything is law-like. Okay? Now, I have to uh, acquaint you with another, and this will be my last development here, another offspring of the collapse of critical positivism. Once the intellect becomes an evolutionary adaptation mechanism, a fancy kind of claw, truth is no longer necessarily the aim of thought. And at the end of the 19th century, first decade of the 20th century, there are all sorts of people running around denouncing intellectualism. Now, by intellectualism, they didn't mean the ambition to be an egghead. They meant trusting the way your reason presented things, as though that presentation were the truth. Who were these anti-intellectualists? Well, uh, okay, they were legion, but some very prominent ones were Catholics. There was one called Maurice Blondel, a philosopher who found a teaching job down in the south of France. And um, there was a fellow named Lucien Labertonniere. Never mind him. He's unreadable anyway. But here's the funny case. There was a Catholic mathematician and physicist named Edward Leroy. Capital L-E, capital R-O-Y. Edouard Leroy, born 1870. So he was young for these modernist guys. He was only 35 in 1905 when he started publishing this stuff. That reminds me of something else. Please remember, the, the main modernists, Loisy, Tyrrell, the go-between, uh, like von Hugel, they, none of them were spring chickens. They had all been born in the 1840s or 50s. They were middle-aged and past middle-aged men by the beginning of the 20th century when they launched the modernist movement. These are not hot young people full of bright young ideas. These were old guys soaked in the thought of the previous century and now trying to do something with it. All right. Edouard Leroy was a well-known 
mathematician and physicist and virulently denounced intellectualism. You, how is that possible? How can a mathematician denounce intellectualism? Well, never mind how he did it. He did. All right. And he decided to bring his new ideas to bear upon his faith by publishing in the year 1905 a book called what, an article called What is a Dogma? Casquin Dogma in the French. What is a dogma? And he set out to attack the entire classical understanding of what a dogma is. Oh, what's wrong with our classical understanding? Leroy says, it's intellectualist. Uh, come again? What's the matter with it? Well, a dogma pretends to be something like a philosophical truth or a truth about unseen things, a factual statement about invisible realities, as though human propositions could really get at the real, har, har, har. We all think of dogmas as factual statements about invisible things. We believe that our dogmas are flat out true. So they are true descriptions of invisible things. Isn't this right? Leroy argued in this famous article that that couldn't be. That if you try to take them as intellectual truths or true descriptions of invisible things, he says dogmas are unintelligible. They make no sense whatsoever. Now never mind why he thought that. I could tell you, but it would take all night. What did he propose to do about it? Did Leroy propose to throw out dogmas altogether? Oh, no. Perish the thought. That would be liberal Protestantism. Oh, no, no. We're not going to throw the dogmas out. We're going to change what they mean. How are we going to change what they mean? Well, they're no longer going to be true, indicative, factual sort of statements about invisible or mysterious realities. All dogmas are going to be, are you ready for this? Rules of behavior. Rules of behavior. This was called the pragmatic theory of dogma. Okay? Loisy illustrated his case with three examples. Example number one, the Holy Eucharist. Now, we believe in something called transubstantiation, right? And we believe a lot of fairly complex propositions about the, the matter and, and the appearances and the true substance and so forth and so on. Leroy sweeps all of that away. That's all unintelligible. The true meaning of the dogma of the real presence is you are to treat 
the consecrated host. You are to behave towards the consecrated host as you would behave towards Jesus appearing to you in the flesh. Okay? Is that a bad idea? Don't you think that's a pretty good rule of conduct? I would think it's pretty good. Anyway, you're supposed to adore the consecrated, whatever. But it never occurred to you, did it, that that pious rule of conduct could be the meaning of the dogma, did it? No. Let's take the dogma of the resurrection. Loisy says the idea that Christ acquires or lives some higher kind of life beyond the grave is unintelligible. So the real meaning of the dogma of the resurrection is you should treat Jesus as you would treat one of your contemporaries. In other words, pretend he's still alive. Now, I do think that as a result of the resurrection, we should treat Jesus as a living, divine person, living in his human nature as well as the divine nature, and we should pray to him. Those are all, if you want to say, they're, they're implications of the resurrection, but they're not its meaning, right? What was the third example? I forget. And anyway, it's late. Those two examples will do. All right. You see how this worked. And the darn thing is, this idea that dogmas should no longer be considered true or false statements, but should rather be read as rules, instructions, behave this way, behave that way, did not die out in 1905. Poor Edward Lois got buried under a barrage of theological criticism, I'm happy to say. Our theologians were zealous that year, and, and they, they, they pounded this guy darn well. But the idea has been revived. It's been revived in ever so many forms in our own generation. Now, you're expecting me to tell you about one of these revivals at the hands of an alleged Catholic who is thereby unmasked as a heretic, aren't you? I wish I had world enough and time to do that, but I'm not. I'm going to give you an example of a Lutheran theologian who has revived this form of modernism. That way I stay safe. George Lindbeck is a professor of theology at Yale Divinity School, an expert in the Reformation and late scholasticism. Okay? One of the foremost Lutheran theologians in the country. Put out a book on the nature of dogma a few years ago in which he said, dogmas are not true or false statements. They're rules for discourse. They're like the grammar rules of how to speak Christian. Uh-huh. So, you know, when I read the book, I said to myself, Lindbeck, you mean to tell me that all the blood spilled at the Reformation was spilled over grammar? <laughs> so, now, I've given you examples of how the faith is denied or trivialized, dogmas gotten around, beat up on. 
by modernists who are working out of this philosophical background or set of backgrounds. Okay? Modernism doesn't have just one philosophical root. It's got roots all over the whole 19th century. Which is why it is correct to say that modernism owes nothing to the 20th century. It was the ambition of 20th century theologians to play with 19th century toys. They were mad when Pius X shut the lid of the toy box. And they saw Vatican II as a chance to open the toy box again. All right, that's all I have to say. Thank you very much. Thank you again, Dr. Marshner, for a very enlightening talk. But I want to go one step further than Dr. Marshner and say that this stuff is still around today. And I only know that because while I was on an airplane this morning, I was reading a 20-page paper written by a Mormon while he was attending our dearly beloved Catholic University, Notre Dame, mm-hmm. quoting a Catholic theologian who was espousing a form of ontologism. Okay, and I was reading, I was emailed by someone in California who has a wife, a former Mormon, whose family is still Mormon, and was asking me to read this paper so as to give them some sort of help in defending the faith with his family. This stuff is still around, it's real and live today. Further, I had an email exchange this week with a speaker that I was considering, and don't worry, he's not coming, to speak for the Institute of Catholic Culture, who was espousing a form of positivism. It's still around. I would highly recommend that when we put this series out on CD, you get a copy of it, stick it in your player, turn off Rush Limbaugh, and play this series over and over and over again. And when you turn the CD off, don't worry, Rush Limbaugh will still be saying the same thing on the radio. (laughs) This is good stuff. It's still around today, and you have to be equipped to be able to defend the faith in all of its many forms because this thing is splintering out into all sorts of say, small errors, small errors which have large consequences, and you have to be equipped. We will be coming back shortly, in a couple of minutes, for Q&A for those that can stay around. Are you going to answer sitting down? You're more than welcome to. <laughs> he got to yell at me enough times in class, I think I can give him a hard time. Our usual rules apply. <laughs> Make sure your qu- question has to do with the subject at hand, has a question mark on the end, don't take a breath, and don't take my microphone away from me. Question number one. Dr. Marshner, it sounds like some of the philosophies that you were talking about, similar to what we learned about Islam from Dr. Riley. Uh, earlier, like the gravity and the fact that whatever God thinks is what happens. So I'm wondering, does Islam influence this modernism, or does modernism influence Islam? No, neither way. Neither way. Islamic philosophy, from early on, adopted a position called occasionalism, which says that created things never produce effects in other created things. It only looks like it. The reason the egg cracks is not because it hits the floor. It's just that the presence of the floor is the occasion for God to crack the egg. When it comes to modernism, 
Islam, of course, is utterly impervious to it because it is so thoroughly stupid. <laughs> but Islam had the horrible experience of all of its philosophers being like modernists. All of the philosophers, Avicenna, Averroes, all of them, had the attitude towards Islam that Hegel had towards Christianity. Namely, that Christianity, or voice of prophecy and so on, is a popular way of presenting the truths that philosophy knows better. As a result, Islam could never trust its intellectuals. And fortunately, we've had plenty we could trust, but not the modernists. They, them you can't trust. Doctor, would you say that the modern interpretation of Vatican II as a rupture with tradition and the birth of a new church, for example, in the history of Bologna School's history of the Vatican II, is a direct result of absorbing all this modernism? All right. Well, there is a prominent interpretation of the work of Vatican II, made prominent by people who, some of them at any rate, were Paritas's were Pariti, at the Council. They have read the Council documents in a modernist vein. Okay? Now, the Council itself and the papacy has instructed people not to read the stuff that way. But um, uh, certainly a modernistic interpretation of the spirit of Vatican II and often of the letter of Vatican II has been circulated. And it is essential to repudiate that. There's a text that I was afraid to discuss tonight because too many people are going to think I'm off the deep end. We're very you interested, Dr. Marshall. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do you remember uh, there was this, uh, an opening speech by John XXIII at Vatican II? Remember that opening speech? Ever hear of it? Uh, it's not actually part of the proceedings exactly of the council. But the Pope was there to give an opening speech. And famously in that speech, he remarked that the purpose of the council was to restate the dogmas of the church, not changing their substance, of course, but improving their presentation. The exact words I'm blanking on right now. The substance of the dogmas will remain the same, but the presentation will change. Right? John XXIII did not know it, but the Jesuit who wrote his speech may have known it. Exactly that same language was used by Alfred Loisy. Okay? And it was used for a very good reason. It is so dangerously ambiguous. If you attack it, hammer and tongs, you sound like a fool because it has an orthodox interpretation. But that may not be the one meant. Look, everybody understands the importance of paraphrasing things when you are involved in getting a message across. You can certainly reword things so that the substance remains the same. The presentation becomes a little different, a little bit lighter or something. All right, that's understandable. That doesn't have to be heterodox. But what if it turns out that the substance of the dogma doesn't include its referent, doesn't include the sense of its predicate, 
doesn't include anything we would consider part of the basic affirmation being made, but is some sort of orientation that you can't get your hands on. That's exactly what Loisy thought. Okay. He proposed to revise dogmas in ways that all the rest of us would consider substantial. But he said, oh no, that's just accidental. And the reason that this is deeply ambiguous, let's face it, friends, is because it is meaningless to say that a dogma has a substance. A dogma is not a substantial thing. It's, if you call something about a dogma its substance, you're using a metaphor. Like the meat of it or something like that. You see, you know that calling something the meat of the proposition is a metaphor. Well, likewise, with calling something the substance. It's a metaphor. You can mean by it anything you want. And there were plenty of people waiting around at Vatican II for the Pope to get off his podium so that they could go about making that project their project in their own way. In a slightly similar vein, I was wondering if you could characterize how effective the church was in combating uh, these heresies in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and particularly whether this was at all addressed in the First Vatican Council. Okay, the First Vatican Council came before the modernist movement but not before ontologism and some other mistakes that were addressed at that council. And in any case, Vatican I provided us with the most important piece of ammunition in all of the Church's teaching against modernism, namely Canon Three, from the chapter on faith and reason from uh, Dei Filius, the first constitution of Vatican I. The Canon says... If anyone says it can come about over the course of time that a meaning is to be given to dogmas different from what the church has held and now holds, let him be anathema. There was a definition that the meaning of dogma is fixed. You can't change it. Okay. Needless to say, the theologians who criticized Edward Lorois said to him, you're changing the meanings of the dogmas. Okay. Likewise, Loisy's concept of miracle would change the meaning of all of our dogmas about miracles. So that was a major piece of ammunition. Now, how effective was church initiative at tamping down the modernist movement? I have to give you a two-prong answer. On the one prong, Pius X did an enormously better job than Paul VI. Okay? He was Johnny on the spot, not only with encyclicals, thank you for Pashendi, but also with lists of condemned propositions. Those are so handy. Like Lamentaboli. And also with an anti-modernist oath and also with the setup of committees of investigation in seminaries. Okay. On the other hand, this is the other prong to the thing, church initiatives alone did not get rid of modernism. They could drive it underground to some extent, 
they could make people more mendacious about their modernism, but they couldn't completely get rid of it. The main thing that killed modernism was World War I. World War I put an end to that era of Victorian and Edwardian optimism. The idea that we have evolved beyond all the primitive conceptions of our ancestors was suddenly shown to be hollow on the unbelievably barbaric battlefields of World War I. Nobody came out of the trenches of World War I a modernist. Except for one man. The only one. People came out atheists. People came out orthodox. Nobody came out of those trenches one bit interested in liberal religion. Except one man. Teilhard de Chardin. Chaplain in the French army. I'm glad he wasn't hearing my confessions. Anyway. All of these different things you've talked about about modernism, these philosophical trends and so forth, are any of them actually heresies? I mean, or are they just philosophical disputes? My topic, assigned to me by Sabatino, was philosophical roots of modernism. The modernist contentions are heresies. Edouard Lourdes' contention that the meaning of a dogma is a behavioral prescription is a heresy. Loisy's claim about what a miracle is, is a heresy. But the philosophies upon which these people drew are not heresies, because we don't evaluate philosophies that way. Philosophies are to be criticized on philosophical grounds, on rational grounds. What we have to say about these philosophies is that they were uniformly baloney. All right. Kant was wrong about practically everything. Metaphysical idealism was absurd. Positivism was absurd and has been shown to be absurd even by the conduct of scientists. The fusion of the two, therefore, was absurd. Unfortunately, no degree of stupidity has ever made an idea impossible for a human mind to hold. Thank you, Dr. Marshner. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.